0: You know, one of the most provocative questions that I think any atheist, uh, maybe faulty follower of Jesus, or genuine historian has to confront at some point is how the Christian movement became what it did. How did the tiny circle of uneducated, arguing, cowering, fickle followers of an executed rabbi in a murky backwater of the ancient world grow to become the culture-transforming religion of the empire that set out to squash it? How did it outlast not only the Roman Empire, but the scores of other civilizations and kingdoms that have followed Rome, and then surge on to become the massive and still expanding global phenomenon that it is today. The largest, oldest corporation on planet Earth, with branch offices in every country, in many cases, in every village and town. How did this happen from those humble beginnings? The answer to that question can be summed up in one word. Power power. The rise of the Christian church whose birthday we celebrate on the day of Pentecost is the story of an amazing power at work. It is a power that I submit to you is still very much needed in our own individual lives, in the lives of our families, and our communities, in our workplace, our government, the society and world at large. And so I want to invite you to look at this morning with me, at the very character of that power, at the way it flows through a particular people at one crucial period in history, and then to ask ourselves before we go today, how might this power move more fully through you and through me still? Before we do that, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Lord God, however we came into this place today, with whatever expectations we may have arrived, we simply lay down before you our very selves and pray that the glorious story of who you are, how you work with people, might come to open our hearts and allow us to receive in a deeper way today and in the days to come, your Holy Spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, when we open up the Bible storyline today, in Acts chapter 1, the writer Luke is continuing the story of Jesus. In volume 1 of his book, the one that bears his name, Luke's Gospel, he's told us about how Jesus began to do his work. But here, in the book of Acts, He is chronicling that continuing work. Luke's writing to a literal or a figurative man named Theophilus, which in the Greek literally means God-lover. Luke is reminding God-lovers everywhere that the story of the church has its origins in the resurrected Jesus, that there's no way of understanding what the church is to be uh, about or is about apart from understanding the resurrected Jesus. In other words, the display of power that you're going to meet in the book of Acts, Luke is implying, and which I would add, all of us need in our lives so desperately still today. This power is not simply a human phenomenon. It is not power as it is sometimes conceived. This power we're going to encounter is not the power of wishful thinking. It is not the power of positive mental attitude. It is not the power of clever marketing, it is not the power of human organization, it is not the power of human government, it is not the power of humanity, period. It is the very power of God himself that we're going to see flowing in the book of Acts. The same power that worked miracles of healing grace through Jesus. The same power that reanimated the brutalized corpse of Jesus The same power that proved itself so convincingly over a period of 40 days that those who had seen it preferred to be tortured to death themselves rather than to ever deny that Jesus was alive. This same power that worked in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is now about to get poured out in people's lives. It's now about to multiply itself beyond the one man Jesus, into many people's lives. It's about to transform those faulty followers, those fickle followers that we meet back in the Gospels, and it's going to change them into the greatest force of transformation that the world has ever seen. It will turn them into the body of Christ. It will fashion them into the church of Jesus. It will make them the very first colony of the expanding kingdom of God. Acts chapter 1 says that in his last moments on earth, Jesus gathered his disciples to himself and instructed them. He had told them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. Now you have to remember that prior to his crucifixion, Jesus had said that the Holy Spirit was the indispensable gift that was coming. I want to draw your attention to your left, to the window over there. Because it illustrates much of what Jesus was trying to say. The Holy Spirit is going to come to you as your counselor. It's going to lead you in my way, Jesus said. It's going to be your comforter in time of distress and need. It's going to give you the power that you need to go on in the midst of tragedy and trial of various kinds. The Holy Spirit will be the paraclete, the one that comes alongside of you and companions you on life's journey. It will be your guide. It will be your teacher. It will be your helper. The Holy Spirit is the gift that my Father is going to send to you. Jesus had told his disciples. And this gift, he said, is worth waiting for. It is what's going to enable you to do the work I've begun. It is worth hanging on for. Don't go out there, says Jesus, and try and do life on your own. (laughs) don't just go out there and try and rely on your own power or, or, or you will achieve nothing more than what is already being done in this world. Life will be no different for you than for anyone else. But stay here, I tell you. Stay here in Jerusalem and wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The disciples, it must be said, didn't entirely understand what Jesus was saying. Uh, I guess you couldn't blame them. This was going to be new stuff. The disciples did not get even the nature of the power that Christ was offering to them. Acts chapter one and verse six says, "So that when they met together, they asked him, "Lord, instead of tell us more about the spirit," they asked, "Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel?" In other words, Lord, are you going to give us the power to build back?" our old kingdom? Are you going to do that? Lord, are you going to help us to get back up in the driver's seat that got taken away from us by those Romans when they took over here? Lord, are you going to give us the health, wealth, and prosperity that ought to, be to belong to the people that God blesses? Are you going to punish or banish those people that we don't like? Are you going to organize a better government for us? Are you going to maybe give us seats in that government, Lord? Are you going to restore at this time the kingdom to Israel? And it is absolutely dumbfounding. The denseness of the disciples. Jesus has spent three years teaching them. In word and in deed about a whole nother kind of kingdom than ancient Israel ever had. He's been teaching them about forgiveness and humility, about servanthood and sacrifice. He has instructed them in the brotherhood of all God's people. He has instructed them in uh, God's concern for the poor. He has given them a picture of the will of God that they be salt and light for the blessing of everybody on the planet. He's told them that change in the world is going to start only as they first align themselves with the will of God. But the disciples still just want power to build the little kingdoms of Israel, to to get things arranged according to their little wills. It's a wonder that Jesus doesn't say, I give up. I am out of here. I'm done with you. And I I sometimes wonder whether that's not a sentiment he holds still. Because, in more ways than it is comfortable to admit, still his disciples think that the gospel of Jesus is about arranging the world in a better way so that it fulfills my kingdom, so that it banishes my enemies. So it builds my health, wealth, and prosperity. So that it organizes the world the way I think it should be. And it's amazing that Jesus doesn't just say to the church sometimes, I give up. You're no different than this world. I give up. I, I, I'm out of here. But he doesn't. He certainly did not. With that first circle of disciples, instead he tells them one more time. Change your focus. It's not for you to know the times or the hours that my father has set by his authority. Focus on the Father and on his authority and stop trying to control it yourself. And then Jesus issues this one final promise, though frankly at this point it had to have looked to any observer like it was just impossible. It was lunacy. This idea that these self-focused people could ever be used to reach even the people next door to them, much less all the way across the planet. But nonetheless, Jesus makes This prophecy, this promise, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. That's I love this. I love this. He's looking at people who still don't get it and he's declaring this promise. You're going to still, I'm going to make you my witnesses. Maybe even in spite of you, you'll be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and out there in Judea, and over there in Samaria, that neighborhood you don't like, and to the very ends of the earth. And with that, the Bible says, Jesus ascends into heaven. Suddenly, two messengers from God appear. A pair of angels appear. They tell the disciples who are standing there, staring up, That one day, this Jesus who they've seen go away is going to return again and walk the earth again to be with them. But that in the meantime, they have a job to do. That they should not be so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly use. That they should stop staring up into the sky and they should get to work doing the things that Jesus has commanded them to do. And rather remarkably, amazingly, they did. They did what Jesus commanded. The scriptures teach that the disciples obeyed the commandment of Jesus and returned to Jerusalem. It was a risky, maybe even a crazy move. The local authorities were already organizing to stamp out the Jesus cult once and for all. But the disciples returned to Jerusalem just the same. Why? Why? Jesus had commanded them. That's right. They were scared, I'm sure. Who wouldn't be? You'd have to be. But they returned to Jerusalem because it was Christ's commandment to them. And there they enter into a period of passionate and persevering prayer the bible says Uh, they come together in constant prayer and they're waiting for god to pour out upon them the gift of the holy spirit that jesus has promised and in this place of prayerful fellowship god reveals to them that they're to select a man named matthias to fill to fill the vacant post among the 12 apostles left behind by judas and then hunted by the jewish leaders and soon to be sought by the soldiers of massive Rome itself. This small band of disciples, women and men alike, the scriptures say, they wait, they wait, they wait for what only God can do. And then came God. Oh, how He came. As they sat all together in one place, the awesome power of the Holy Spirit of God Himself came down upon them. Acts chapter 2 says that they heard a sound like the blowing of a violent wind that filled up the whole house in which they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be, this is the only way they could describe it, it seemed to be like tongues of fire that came down and separated and came to rest upon every one of them. And all of them, everyone in the pew, no exceptions, all of them, were filled suddenly with the power Of God's Holy Spirit. And in a unique manifestation of power. In a manifestation that I I just haven't heard of being repeated. There's this poetic reversal of the confusion of languages that happened back at the Tower of Babel. When human beings, so sin sick, <laughs> tried to build stairway to heaven to glorify themselves, and God separated the languages, now God unites the languages again in the gospel message, and in a way that just jump starts the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth, the disciples are given the capacity to speak the gospel in all of the tongues of the international pilgrims that gathered there in Jerusalem for the Pentecost feast. And the gospel gets sown in all of these people and now travels begins to travel out across the face of the earth. I wonder if any of them spoke Chicagoan. And some mock them. They think they're drunk. And some... Marvel at them. In fact, the bulk of the crowd is simply amazed, the Scripture says, at the wonders of God. The Apostle Peter then rises up to address the crowd. The one who had denied Jesus, the the fickle follower, Peter, rises to address the crowd. And in the first Christian sermon on record, he summarizes the whole storyline of Israel. Israel. In, in a beautifully succinct way, he, he describes the person and the work of Jesus. He, he, he describes even this outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the believers. All of this as a fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And Peter concludes by declaring that Jesus, this Jesus who you've crucified, is God has made both Lord and Savior. He's the one for which the world's been waiting. And suddenly this wave of profound conviction comes over the crowd. Of all of these people who had heard the story of Israel so many times, it was old hat to them. I mean, suddenly Peter puts it together in such a way and links it to the story of Jesus and they see the fulfilled prophecies and they go, Oh my God, we've missed it all these years. (sighs) We've missed it. We've been sitting in the pew in our synagogues in our places and somehow it never came home that God wants to make his dwelling within us and they turn to Peter and they say to him, what shall we do? What shall we do? And Peter responds by laying out for them the first steps or the next steps of the intentional journey of discipleship that comes to someone when they have just begun to discover or rediscover faith, Peter says, repent and be baptized. Turn away. I mean, this time, really, turn away from this old way of the world and enter into the new life of God and open yourself up to Him to let Him baptize you, wash you, cleanse you, renew you into His image. Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. And the Bible goes on to say that those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 the average monthly attendance here at Christ Church, 3,000 were added to their number that first day. We're going to pick up what happens next when we return next week, but let me just draw us toward a close by posing a personal question. Do you ever wonder Do you ever wonder why we're not still seeing the kind of dramatic power of the Holy Spirit that are recorded, that's recorded in those opening days, that first day of the church's life? Do you ever wonder why it's not commonplace anymore? Do you ever wonder why we're not still seeing the radical transformation of lives? People who are able to describe having been totally in this life and then finding this whole new life and being changed in these incredible ways that alter their families and their careers and everything about that? you wonder why we're not hearing about this radical transformation that was a common pattern, as we're going to see in, these coming in, the, in the next week, a common pattern in the life of the early church? Why don't we see more of us exhibiting the dramatic power of the Holy Spirit that casts out our sin and, and renews our relationships? And why don't outsiders look at Christians And their first thought not be Ned Flanders, you know, or or, or church lady, but but a sense of wow, look at the life of these people. It's amazing. Why aren't why aren't thousands of people coming to faith daily? Because of the witness of the Christian church in Chicagoland. Why don't we feel the confidence of of Peter himself to go out and proclaim the message of Christ to the world around us, knowing that they need what is happening in our lives? Why is this? Has God changed his M.O.? Do you think that's possible? He's just changed his M.O. He decided that in the first century he was going to really change people. And now, in the 21st century, he was going to do just a little fine-tuning because there were so many fewer problems in the 21st century that needed dealing with. You think that's possible? When I study the storyline leading up to the events of Pentecost, I'm struck by by two commitments of those first followers of Jesus. It hit me in a new way this week, uh, as I was looking at this story. I I wonder, I don't know for sure, but I wonder if these two commitments could actually be the essential preconditions to God making us more than we are today people of power, people of genuine, radiant, culture-shaping power. Power. People in whom the Holy Spirit dwells and through whom the Holy Spirit moves. I wonder if these two things could possibly be the essential preconditions to God pouring out a new Pentecost. I don't know for sure, but I wonder. The first thing I see is this commitment in the early disciples before Pentecost comes to courageous obedience, to a courageous obedience. The Bible says Jesus gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem. Don't leave Jerusalem. I said before, there was a reason why that would be a hard command to fulfill. It would take courage. It would take guts to do that, given the persecution that was breaking out. They were beginning the house-to-house searches for the followers of Jesus. And the question I want to ask is, what's the Jerusalem for you? What's that place that it is very scary to think about going in obedience to Christ? That it would take risky commitment, risky obedience to follow his command there. Maybe it's forgiving somebody who really wronged you. I mean, Jesus commanded it. Forgive, forgive as I've forgiven you. In fact, we've got the commandments of Jesus up on this window this morning. Just look at those commandments, pick any one of them. These are hard things to do sometimes. So maybe that... You're being called to forgive somebody who has badly hurt you. Or maybe you're being called to confess some sin, some blatant hypocrisy, some double standard in your life. And that's a risky thing to do. If you've built up your whole image and your whole way of handling people by denying this reality in your lives, it's risky obedience to confess it. Perhaps, perhaps the area of obedience the Jerusalem for you is spending your money the way the Bible calls you to. Maybe it's, it's putting in the time to really raise up your children in the way that they should go. I don't mean just do those things that keep your neighbors thinking, you must be a great parent. I'm talking about the radical reorganization of time and priorities and the way the family spends money and all of that stuff in order to really raise kids up that are spiritually vital and healthy kids. Maybe that's the Jerusalem that he's calling you to. Perhaps it's becoming a servant more than a consumer. So you don't walk out of this church ever saying, I wonder what I got from that and I wonder what I was able to give to God and to the other people I met there and everywhere I go. Perhaps it's engaging somebody in a spiritual conversation. Maybe it's something else. I don't know. The point is, ask God to show you what your Jerusalem is and don't leave it until you've obeyed Him there. Don't leave it. Go to that place that Christ is commanding you to go in His name. The second major commitment I see in the life of the believers leading up to Pentecost is their dedication to prayer. When Jesus said, wait for the gift my Father promised, he's not saying, go sit idly someplace and check your email. Or or twiddle your thumbs. Always when the Bible speaks of waiting wait upon the Lord, it means pray. It means open yourself up and leave leave your desires out there towards God. Reach out for for him. Ask him to speak. Ask to know his will. Ask to be given his capacity to understand what he'd have you do. This is what it means to wait Upon the Lord. And as we saw earlier in the days leading up to Pentecost, the disciples, and I quote, all joined together constantly in prayer. The men and the women constantly in prayer. Why? Because they knew they did not have a prayer on their own strength of fulfilling the commandments of Jesus. Be your witness to the ends of the earth. Are you kidding? I can't even do it in my marriage. Is what they're thinking. And so they wait. God, do what we cannot do in us and through us. Do you and I know this for ourselves? That we cannot do. It's why there's no different result so often. It's because we're relying on our positive thinking and our human ingenuity and our effort alone. I'm too busy to pray. No, you're too busy not to pray. This is what God is trying to drive home for us. What if each of us, before we left the building this morning, found a couple of other people, huddled together with them, and in a clumsy, inarticulate way, simply said, God, you know the reality about my life. Thy kingdom come in that place. And through me more, please, please, Lord, pour out your power. What if you were to gather with someone else like that in the weeks to come? Gather a small group together just to pray that the the power of the Lord would move through whatever that situation is that needs power in a fresh way. Let me ask you this in closing. Would you put Would you put a power power saw or the keys to a powerful automobile in the hands of a kid who had no intention of being obedient in following instructions on what to do with it? In fact, let me paint it out further. Would you give a power saw... Or a powerful automobile to a kid who'd shown a pretty consistent pattern of being disobedient when it came to the instructions they've been given? Raise your hand if your answer to that question is, no way. Would you give that kind of power and trust such power to a kid who was too busy to even wait to ask for and to listen for the instructions that they needed to use the power. How many of you would answer, no way? No way. You get the point? I get the point. Jesus said, if, if, if you know how to give good things to your kids how much more does your father in heaven want to give good things to those who ask him but the greatest thing he wants to give us is the enormous gift of his life-changing power just as he did those first disciples But if we're not already feeling the hum of that power moving through us, then perhaps it's time to find our Jerusalem and start being more obedient there as a starting place. Maybe it's time to gather some others and pray for His will. Not my disguised will. His will to be done there. Maybe it's time to be obedient and to wait in prayer. And then let's just watch and see what God does. Please pray with me. And now, Lord God, come in power, we pray, not in the power of human words not in the power of good intentions, not in the power of interesting ideas, but in the power of your Holy Spirit, come upon us, fill us, as we repent of our sin, turn to you, and receive your gift. Through Jesus our Lord. Amen.